Our Heavenly Father, it is with gratitude and with expectation that we turn to your word to learn more about Jesus, your beloved Son. Teach us this day of his ways, his dealings. Help us to learn and understand and embrace what it is to know the real Jesus and to walk with him. And how it is that he deals with us, particularly how he deals with us in times of trial. Teach us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this section is like a really good restaurant. We're going to come back to it a few times. This first part uh, of uh, Matthew chapter 11. You know, you come once for the burger. You come another time for the steak, another time for the seafood. Well, this section is pretty rich. The first turn we're going to take focuses on faith's trials. Now, I remind you that in uh, Matthew 1 through 10, just to really put it simply, uh, Christ has been introduced and not just to us, but to the nation of Israel. We've seen his pedigree descended from Abraham through Judah through David. He has a messianic pedigree. He was born of a virgin as Messiah would be. He, was, uh, he grew up in Nazareth. He was delivered from Egypt. And then in chapter 3 we see his baptism where John the Immerser baptized him. Heavens opened. The Holy Spirit descended on him bodily, and the voice of the Father was heard from heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. So this is his uh, fitness to serve, and then he showed uh, his program by going about preaching and saying, repent, for the kingdom of the heavens has drawn near. He gives a sermon, Sermon on the Mount, verses 5 through 7, giving his kingdom agenda, preaching that righteousness which exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And along with his preaching, he did works of power. He preached words of power. He performed works of power. The people were equally amazed at both. Uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they were just knocked flat by the fact that he spoke with authority, not like their scribes, not like the experts in the law. And then in chapters uh, 8 and 9, we saw his authority and power in the realms of nature and supernature, in the spiritual realm as well as in the natural realm. He could forgive sin, he could stop a storm. And this showed his fitness to be the king of the messianic kingdom. So then in chapter 10, he sends out his apostles one last, as it turns out in Matthew, one last preaching trip of the area, announcing the kingdom's presence, doing the works that showed the nearness of the kingdom, proclaiming him to the villages, not going to Gentiles or Samaritans, but just to, what does he say? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. All of this raises the question then, how are people responding to Jesus? God has laid all this out, given all this truth and demonstration of his power and truth. What do they do with it? He doesn't call them to think about these things. He doesn't call them to just watch these things. What does he call them to do? Repent. And when you hear that preached, you really do one of two things. You either repent or you don't repent. So do they repent? Well, that question is answered in chapters 11 and 12, uh, to which we're turning in these weeks to come. We've seen that Matthew arranges it in three cycles of three. And in these cycles, he shows a, a sets, he shows series of responses to Jesus that start out at a point of concern and become escalatingly uh, uh, disastrous, ending in the disastrous rejection by Israel of their Messiah. So we're looking first then at the first response to Jesus, and it doesn't come from a source that we would have expected, and it doesn't come with content that we would have expected. It is in 
John's trial of faith. So let's dive right in. First, I'm going to focus on expounding, lifting some portions out of this passage, and then look specifically to how we apply what we see to our lives. So first we look, Roman numeral one, at John's trial of faith. And that's what we see here, John's trial of faith. First, inquiring about its causes. What brought this about? Well, there are several factors that brought this about. The first is what John, as a believing Jew, had read. I'm just going to give you two examples from the Psalms to illustrate what I want to bring out. What John had read, you could summarize from Psalm 2 and Psalm 22. What did he read in Psalm 2? This messianic word. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So there's a a prophecy of Messiah's kingdom as being a dominant kingdom that will uh, conquer all the nations of the world. It will be global, centered in Jerusalem, but it will be an absolute rule by Messiah over all the nations of the world. But then there's Psalm 22, a messianic psalm, which begins with the familiar words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. Well, these are two very different streams of prophecy, aren't they? One is a dominant, triumphant Messiah king. The other is a suffering and dying victim. How do you put that together? We'll talk about how some put it together, but now I just want you to notice how conflicting, how different these two, and this is what John grew up reading. Uh, Secondly, let's look at what John had preached Matthew chapter 3, and just remind ourselves, what did he preach? Now, he is a prophet. The word of God, as Luke says, came to John in the wilderness. And what was the word of God that John preached? Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The same thing that Jesus would preach afterwards. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then look on uh, further in verses 7 through 12. John said, he sees many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming, and he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He sees wrath as impending. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. and Don't imagine you can take uh, comfort in your Abrahamic descent. Verse 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, prophesied by Jeremiah and Ezekiel for believers, the baptism of fire being a baptism of wrath and judgment on unbelievers. And he goes on to say his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is what John preached. Third, what had and hadn't John see happen? This is the third factor in understanding his trial. What John had and hadn't seen happen. On the one hand, he had seen at the baptism of Jesus, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descend, and heard the Father's voice. This is my son, whom I love, in whom I'm well pleased. 
This is the language of Messianic prophecy. This is like Psalm 2. It's also like Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 61. The Spirit of God rests on on Messiah. He is the servant of the Lord, and God delights in him. So, yeah, this is just according to schedule. And he'd seen many miracles of mercy and power, seen or heard of many miracles of mercy and power. We see in verse 2 of this chapter, I've translated it for you, but when John heard in prison the works of the Christ, so he knew what Jesus was doing on the one hand. But where there's a one hand, what is there also? There's another hand. What had John not seen happen? Had he seen fiery judgment? He'd preached that there would be fiery judgment. Had he seen fiery judgment? No, not at all. He had not seen God crisp one uh, apostate Jew or one Roman centurion. He had not seen a single nation dashed in pieces as Psalm 2 predicted. He'd not seen a single Pharisee chopped down and thrown into the fire as he'd predicted. In fact, what he saw was hardening and mounting opposition and resistance to the Messiah. Secondly, had he seen the baptism in the Holy Spirit? No, that had not happened yet. That would happen on the day of Pentecost. He wouldn't live to see it. So he had not seen the baptism, baptism in fire. He'd not seen the baptism, baptism with the Spirit. And the fourth factor in his trial was where John was. John was a faithful preacher of righteousness. And for that faithfulness, where was he? Verse 2 tells us, in prison. He was in prison hearing the works of Christ. That in itself is just such a vivid portrait of clash. In prison, hearing the works of the Messiah. Why is he in prison? So now you've got to look at this and realize that John is a flesh and blood human being. And the question he's going to ask is not an academic question. It's not an idle question. It's not born of curiosity. It's not just something so that he can have something to chat about with his fellow prisoners or guards. This is his life. This is what he's completely given himself to. He dresses it and eats it, literally, and walks it and talks it and preaches it and now is in prison for it. And what is it that's going on? You've seen the factors that go into that trial. So now, he's in an agonizing, pressing situation. Let's talk, letter B, about the nature of John's trial. Now, we don't want to make too much or too little of it. Uh, On the one hand, you see that in this uh, narrative, Matthew doesn't use the word doubt to say that John doubted. And he doesn't accuse Jesus of anything. Jesus doesn't accuse him of anything. And he doesn't do anything like renounce Jesus or say, I was mistaken or he's not really the Messiah. None of that is uh, in the record on the one hand. However, on the other hand, we've got to resist this very poor way of handling the Bible that some still do, that read the Bible as if it were a comic book and as if the characters in it were cartoon characters, as if they were one-dimensional and they're all good or they're all bad. So if, if Abraham is a man of faith, well, then we can't believe that he ever doubted or ever did anything wrong. If David is a man after God's own heart, then we've got to find some way to explain away the horrible things he did as, I don't know what, not being so bad. And, and, and people are driven to find one dimensionality, but I'll give you a spoiler alert. There's only one character, one human being in the whole Bible story who never did anything wrong, 
and always walked in righteousness. What name would you think that would be? That would be Jesus Christ and nobody else. So the people in the Bible, as James tells us, were people of like passions to us. They were just like us. And while they walked in righteousness, they had their issues. And so it cannot, should not startle us to read that John had a trying time. Because the least you've got to say is he was puzzled. He was perplexed. As I say, this was not an academic question. This was a life and death question to him. And uh, one effort that some have made to make this not John's question, well, they say, really, he didn't have any questions. It was his disciples that did. So he sent them to Jesus so Jesus could tell them and make some sort of revelation to them that would take care of their needs. However, what does Jesus tell the disciples to do? Go tell John. Go tell John. Go report to him what you see. It was John's question. It was not their question. And also notice what Jesus says. He gives a very gentle, loving caution, a warning. What does he say? Blessed is the one who does not trip up over me. Meaning this was a danger. Meaning this was something that John needed to keep his eyes open to. So it was a real situation and a real trial for John. For John personally. And let's consider, too, the nature of this trial. What is he asking then when he says, um, are you he who is coming, or shall we await a different person? Well, he who is coming was a well-known messianic title, so that's what that means. He's saying, are you the Messiah? But what does he mean? He saw the Holy Spirit. He heard the Father's voice. What is he talking about? Should we expect someone else? Remember the start of the sermon. What was the popular thought in his day? In fact, uh, you've heard of the Qumranian community, the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was in operation at John's time. They believed in two messiahs, Messiah ben Yosef and Messiah ben Dawid, a suffering messiah and a reigning messiah. That's how they resolved that tension. Well, these suffering passages are about a suffering messiah, and these reigning passages are about a reigning messiah. There would be two messiahs. And some believed in even more messiahs to come and fulfill parts of God's plan. And so that could very well make perfect sense to think that that's it. He's not asking if Jesus is, is fake or phony. He's asking if, if he got something wrong, if he's not understanding something about God's program, because what he's seeing is not like what he read, and it's not like what he prophesied yet. These things, and by the way, let me say, everything he prophesied was true, but none of it had happened yet. This judgment had not fallen yet. This baptism had not happened yet, and he was in prison. And again, spoiler alert, he wouldn't live to see any of this happen. He would die in prison. So this is a very real question to him, uh, growing from that soil. He's bothered, he's perplexed, he's puzzled and stressed, and he needs Jesus' help. So that takes us to considering letter C, John's actions. What does he do with this trial? What does he do with this tension, this perplexity? Well, first, let's talk about what he doesn't do. He doesn't just dissolve into a self-consuming cycle of doubt and depression and despair and gloom. He doesn't just wrap him into a little ball of hurt and consume himself in his darkness and, and his despair. He doesn't do that. Um, he doesn't embrace doubt, as we've seen. Uh, I'll never tire of, of marveling that, that people who think they're Christian leaders speak of doubt in such admiring terms sometimes, as if it's such a noble thing, and it marks you as a deep thinker. Well, John did not embrace doubt and talk about how great doubt is. 
I think no angel ever did that. Jesus never did that. I don't think any disciple or apostle ever did that. But some today certainly make doubt seem noble, make you feel kind of bad if you don't doubt. Uh, But John does not embrace doubt and start talking about how noble doubt is. He doesn't do that. And he certainly does not deny Jesus. Well, things didn't go as I expected, and so you can't be the real Messiah. He doesn't do that. And finally, another thing he doesn't do, he doesn't ask the Pharisees what they think about him. Now, you chuckle, but this is exactly what many moderns do with their doubt. They go to somebody who doesn't believe at all and ask their opinion. But he doesn't go to the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes or the legal experts. doesn't go to any of them, the priests. Now, what does he do? He goes to Jesus. He goes straight to Jesus. Straight to Jesus. He has a life and death issue, and there's only one person who he wants to hear about it. There's only one mind he wants open to him on this issue. And he will accept that answer as final. He's asking Jesus to help him see how to think about this. He's not challenging him to debate. He's not engaging him in conversation. He's asking him for truth. He's asking him how to think about it. And so he's not saying to Jesus in effect, well, what do you think so that I can listen and then make up my own mind? He's saying, what should I think so that I can have your mind? How should I think so that my mind reflects your mind? He's asking Jesus to give him truth. He's going to Jesus for truth and help. And what is Christ's response? Well, this is almost as surprising as John's question, I think, and we must not rush past it. And I'm going to start with the second part of Christ's response. The second part is his his words about John out of John's hearing. And that's verses 7 through 11. Now notice that Matthew particularly makes a point of saying, I'm going to my translation, and as these men were going, Jesus began to say to the crowds concerning John. So get this, this doesn't get back to John. He waits till they're gone and then talks about John. And what does he say about John? Well, what did you go out into the desert to observe? A reed being shaken by the wind? But instead, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft garments? Look, those bearing soft garments are in the palaces of kings. But rather, what did you come out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one exceeding a prophet, this is he concerning whom it was written, look, I'm sending my messenger before your face. In verse 11, truly I say to you, one is not arisen among those born of women greater than John the Immerser. Yet he who is smaller in the kingdom of the heavens is greater than he. He's just said John is the greatest man who ever lived. And he didn't say it to John. Do you think John might have liked to have heard that? But Jesus doesn't say it to him. Why? Why does he say it about John but not to John? In fact, look at what he does say to John. What he says to John well, it's, it's kind of brusque, isn't it? Look at what he says. Uh, first of all, let's talk about what he doesn't say to John, how he doesn't respond to John. It's not what we'd do, or what we'd probably do. So first of all, he doesn't mount a jailbreak. He doesn't mount a jailbreak. Well, he did later, right? Didn't he break Peter out of jail? Didn't he break Paul out of jail? Yes, there were miraculous uh, uh, rescues in both cases, but there's none for John. John would die in jail. He doesn't flatter him. He's not even sentimental to him. 
and I hope I don't hurt anybody, but it, it's, it's not like this footprints thing, for instance. Most of you know that probably. I had a dream about my walk with the Lord and saw two, two uh, sets of footprints walking down the sand. But every now and then, there was just one set of footprints. And I was so hurt and sad to wonder why my Lord wasn't walking with me. So I said, Jesus, how come you weren't with me during those times? And, and Jesus, in this parable, this poem, says, Oh, my precious, darling, beloved one, I would never, ever leave you, but always stay with you. Well, that's very sentimental, and I'm not saying there's no truth in it, but I am saying that's not the way Jesus talked to John. <laughs> he didn't say anything like that to John, did he? No, nothing like that at all. He was not sentimental. He didn't speak to John's feelings. He didn't try to make John feel better, did he? W wouldn't you? Wouldn't you have? Wouldn't you have said, you know, I so appreciate you, what you've done. You're, you're, you'll be rewarded from God. Uh, you, you are a righteous witness, and I wish there were more people like you. Well, or maybe say the things that he said when, the, when his disciples left to John. But he doesn't do, he doesn't do any of that. And notice, too, another thing Jesus does, does not do. He does not give him any new information. He doesn't say, oh, let me let you in on a secret. I'm going to make a church, you know. It's going to be a new man, a new creation. He doesn't tell him that. He doesn't tell him anything new. In fact, look at verse 2. When John heard in prison the works of the Christ, and what does Jesus answer? He says, tell him what you saw, which is the works of the Christ, which he already knew about. And the last thing that Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't respond in an angry, rejecting way. He doesn't say, you go back to John and tell him I'm done with him. Tell him I don't deserve this and I don't need anyone like him following me. Tell him that, that he can die alone because I don't have any care or any regard for him. He doesn't say anything like that, though John is going through a trial. So let's talk about what he does do. He does two things, basically, and I'm going to start with the second the second thing he does is he makes a tenth beatitude just for John. In the Sermon on the Mount, we see nine beatitudes. Now he makes up a tenth, and he sends it to John. What does he say? He says, you tell him, blessed is he who is not tripped up over me. So he's telling John, what, what is he saying? You hang on in hope. That's the blessed way. Hang on in hope. Don't trip. Don't stumble. You keep on keeping on in trust in belief, in faith. And that is the blessed way. So that's the second thing he does. He makes up a tenth beatitude and sends it to John just for him. But what's the first thing he does? The first thing he does is, I'll read it, verse 4, go and report to John what things you are hearing and saying. Blind people are saying again, and crippled are walking. Lepers are being cleansed, and deaf people are hearing. And dead people are being raised, and poor people are being told the good news. How could you express all that in just one sentence? What does he say to John? He says, you already know the answer to your own question. You already know the answer to your own question. Or to say it another way, he says, you just need to think about what you already know. Or to say it another way, he says, you need to think about what you read in your Bible wait a minute, why do I say that? He doesn't say it is written. Oh, but if you look at the footnote on your outline, you'll see verses from Isaiah cited because that's what Jesus is saying. All these things he says, tell him what you see me doing, all those things are little, little snippets of quotation from the book of Isaiah. About what? 
about the kingdom of God, about the messianic kingdom. So he's quoting little bits of scripture to John to, to, to say, tell John that you're seeing these scriptural things being done. So in effect, what he's saying is, read your Bible. Remember your Bible. Stand on your Bible. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Does that sound like anything you've heard recently in sermons? Think about what you already knew and what you already believed is true and rest on that. Rest on that and don't trip. Don't stumble. Put your full weight on what you know from God's word. This is what he says to John. So before we shift gears and talk about how we apply this ourselves, although perhaps you're thinking, well, we could just close in prayer right now because there's a whole lot of application right there, but I do want to make more. You might ask, but, but why doesn't he say those wonderful things to John? Well, let me ask a question in return. He says all these wonderful things. Why not say them to John? Well, let me ask you this. Could John have known whether God loved him? Could John have known whether God took delight in him? Could John have known whether God was pleased with him? How could he know that? And I tell you, if you say from a deep, a still small voice in his heart, we're going to have a talk. Or from what he felt about God, we're going to have a talk. Could John have known those things? Well, yes, did his Bible have Psalm 34, 18? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those crushed in spirit. Was he brokenhearted? Was he crushed in spirit? Then when's, where's God in relation to him? He's near him in that jail cell. How could he have known that? By reading Psalm 34, 18, by understanding it, by believing it to be true, and by what else? Resting on it embracing it, believing it. Uh, Psalm 146, the second part of verse 8, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Was John righteous? Was he walking in God's ways? He was. What does Psalm 146 verse 8 tell us? The Lord loves the righteous. Could John have known that the Lord loved him? Yes, he could. How? From his Bible. Or Proverbs eleven twenty. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. Was John's way blameless? To the extent it got him thrown, got him thrown in jail, yes it was. So how does that mean the Lord thought of him? The Lord was delighted in him. How could he have known that? By reading his Bible. Proverbs 15, 9. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. Did John pursue righteousness with all his heart to jail? So how does the Lord feel about him? He loves him. How could John have known that? By reading his Bible. You see, same answer as the first answer. Now let's shift gears then. We've talked about John's trials of faith. Let's talk about our trials of faith and make personal application of these things we've seen in John. Roman numeral two. What are the causes of our trials of faith? Well, let me quickly deal with the first and most obvious, and it doesn't exactly fit, but whenever you see, well, okay, the, this cause is when we want something evil and God stands in our way. Now, very often you will find that people who are famous for having been Christian, uh, contemporary Christian music artists 
or pastors or writers or big mouths or something, and they, they're renouncing their faith. Suddenly they have all these problems with the Bible. They have all these deep questions that the Bible doesn't answer, and they have all, all these things that they just don't find in Jesus. And of course Christians, well the Christians who believe in the Bible anyway, are really, really horrible people. Suddenly, where have all these troubles come from? And when you scratch off the paint, you find out they just wanted to sleep around. They just wanted to sleep with the wrong person or the wrong sex. Am I making this up? Or they want to take something that doesn't belong to them. Or their pride has simply overcome them. Or they found that their Christian platform has taken them where they want to know, want to be, and now they can take it from there, becoming the darling of the world, the kind of Christian the world loves an ex-Christian. That a hypocritical Christian or an ex-Christian, the world loves that kind of Christian. And so this is exactly what happens. And so where does their trial of faith? Well, it really isn't a trial of faith when we look at it closely. It is a revelation of lack of faith. It, it, it is an exposure of unbelief. It's not really a trial of faith. So let me talk about something that will strike home. You either are going through this, or you have gone through this, or you will if you're a Christian. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And what is this? This is subtle. This is universal. It's going to sound so simple that you will not perhaps realize how significant it is when I say it the first time. So I'll say it several times. The source of this trial of faith and most of our trials of faith is simply this. When God doesn't meet our expectations. Oh, yeah, ouch. I hear you. I hear you, brother. I hear you, sister. When God does not meet our expectations. So, these can be perfectly good and moral expectations. I'm not talking about evil things here. uh, But I'm talking about things that we believe we should have. We believe we're entitled to have. We see no reason why we shouldn't have them. And God does not bring them to us. In fact... Well, like the song we just sang, eventually, he brings the opposite into our lives. And we know he could have met our expectations, and yet he doesn't. And that creates an issue. That's the nature of these trials. When God doesn't meet our expectations. So let's talk about uh, the, the nature. That, I'm sorry, that's the causes. Now let's talk about the nature uh, the nature of this trial, very often, in fact, I'm, I would say usually, it's so internalized and subjective that we don't understand that that's the issue. We wouldn't say it out loud that way. If somebody said, what's the matter, we wouldn't say, well, God hasn't met my expectations. <laughs> because, you know, that sounds kind of obvious. And so we, we really have something else. The issue is the way my spouse is treating me. It's the way my kids are treating me. It's the way people in church are treating me. It's the way my boss is treating me. It's the way my neighbors, it's the way the world is, that's the way God is treating me. It's my career, it's my life, it's my health. You see, I'm a wife. Should my husband love me? Is it it wrong to, to want my husband to love me? Not at all. I'm a husband. Should my wife respect me? Is it wrong to expect my wife to, to, to want my wife to respect me? Not at all. I'm a child. Should I expect my parents not to exasperate me, but to bring me up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Well, that, that is a, that's a moral desire. I'm a parent. I want my children to honor me. Is that a wrong want? It's not at all. I want people to love me. I'd like people to want to be my friend. I'd like people to seek me out. I'd like people to appreciate me. I'd like my boss to appreciate me more. 
I'd like to have more opportunities at work. I'd, I'd like to have my neighbors look at me better. Are these evil things to want? Well, these aren't evil things to want. The things we talked about before, wanting someone else's wife or to take somebody's car or, or whatnot, well, yeah, those are evil wants. That, that's easy <laughs> or relatively simple. These, well, they're not, they're not immoral, but what's the, what's the issue? It's when I feel I'm entitled to those things. I should have those things. In fact, I should have those things right now. And we know that God, God could make that happen. Now, we're not those people who reject the teaching of the Bible of God's absolute total sovereignty, that he's the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. He's the one who decrees and it happens without fail. And so we know he could change these areas. He could change uh, our husband's feeling, our wife's feeling, our children, our parents. He could change their hearts. He could change our situation. And yet he doesn't do it. And so we've got a trial. Our faith is tried. Our faith is sore tried. And the real underlying issue, and we, we talk about unanswered prayer maybe, or, or our suffering, or this and that, or we focus on the things that people are doing that's not good. They shouldn't be doing these things. But the underlying issue is, I expected something different, and I'm not okay with this. I'm entitled to something different, honestly, and I'm not okay with this. And apply that to John. Was it wrong for him to want to see the Messianic kingdom come? <laughs> no. <laughs> Was it wrong for him to want to see the wicked judge? No. Was it wrong for him to want to see Messiah sit on the throne in Jerusalem and, and rule the nations and judge the wicked? No, these are all perfectly right desires. But it wasn't happening now. There was the tension. What he uh, expected was not happening when he expected it to happen, the way he expected it to happen. And that caused perplexity and trial, and it does to us as well. So what is our action? Let's talk about what we often do. It depends on our personalities. People do diff opposite things. Maybe we seethe with, with anger and rage at this injustice, or maybe we just melt in self-pity, in lament, in sadness and sorrow, feeling sorry for ourselves. And maybe we act out in angry ways and do angry, hasty things, or maybe we just give up and don't do anything at all, quit all of our our commitments and, and leave everything and just go off and melt in the puddle of self-pity somewhere because of how bad things have gone for us. And I don't deny things may have gone very, very badly. You don't hear me saying that. That's not the issue. Uh, we withdraw, we act out, we melt, we seethe. We go to prayer is another thing we often do. We'll turn to prayer and we will pray and pray and pray that God changes the situation, changes that person, changes our circumstances, or that God changes the way I feel about it, that he'll make me feel happier, that he'll make me feel better, that he'll make me feel more positive. But these aren't wicked things to pray, are they? So this is the sort of thing we pray. Or again, maybe we just give up prayer altogether because it's not getting us what we want. We ask God to do something and he doesn't do it, so why pray? So we stop praying bitterly and disappointed and hurting. This is what we often do. What should we always do? Let's talk about what we should always do well. Prayer is a good start. We should always go to God with it as John did to Jesus. Scripture again and again encourages us to pour out our heart before God and to come boldly to the, to the throne of grace to obtain grace to help and find mercy in time of need. I think I said that backwards. Mercy to help and grace in time of need. 
And Scripture encourages that to us to do that with great boldness and, and great insistence. And Jesus encourages us not to give up praying, but to keep praying. Now, this is definitely scriptural, but remember what prayer is and isn't. What is prayer? There's just a simple way of expressing what prayer always is. It's always one thing. Me talking to God. That's what prayer is. Me talking to God. But what do I need? I need to hear from God. What did John need? Was John's big thing his question? No. His big thing was he wanted the answer to his question. He wanted to know the answer to the question. Do you want to know? Yes, that's right. So that's why I pray and then I go into a silent waiting trance, waiting for God's still small voice to speak to my heart. I can't tell you how many Christians are doing that, and it's not biblical at all. If you want to hear God speak to you, where do you go? You go to Scripture and read Scripture. And if you want to hear God speak to you out loud, what do you do? Read Scripture out loud. That's right. But that is the place, and that is the only place you and I will hear God speak to us. And just like Jesus said to John, remember your Bible. Remember what you already know. What would Jesus say to us in these situations? Exact same thing. Remember what you already know. In most cases, he would be able to say to us who've been Christians for any length of time, reading our Bibles for any length of time, taught faithfully for any length of time, he would be able to say to us, you already know the answer. You already know the answer. Go to your Bible and find it. This is what we should always do. Talk to God, yes, but shut up and listen. And how do I listen? I read scripture. Why? So that I can deal with this in what? In faith. Because Paul says we walk by and not by. And sight is what I feel and see and empirically know. But it's by faith that I walk as a Christian, and faith is the substance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So I go to Scripture to find those realities I need to know. I learn what it says so that I can recognize the, I, that I can uh, recognize the truth. I believe it, realizing that it is true, and then what do I do? I rest on it. I embrace it. I put my full weight on it. And if God says that He's with me in Scripture, and I don't feel that He's with me, do I hold out hope until I feel it? Or do I say, you promised. I'm going to turn in that promise. This is my ticket. I'm turning in that promise. You said you're with me. I will trust that you're with me. You said that you will uh, help me and strengthen me. I trust that you will help me and strengthen me because your word says it. So we need to be very clear, crystal clear about this and how, how to go about this. So let's talk then, finally, about how God responds. What does God do when we're in trial? We talked about how Jesus responded to, God's uh, to John's trial. How does God respond to our trials? I think that we get great help in remembering how Jesus dealt with John. And remembering, first of all, what didn't Jesus do? He didn't focus on making him feel better. Did you get that, dear one? He didn't first focus on making him feel better. And isn't that what we want, though? Isn't that what we want? We're sad. We're lonely. We're, we're in despair. We're, we're frightened. We're, we're, we live in fear. And we ask God to make us feel less afraid, less sad, uh, less depressed, less lonely. But Jesus didn't do any of these things with John. 
he pointed John to the truth he already knew and the explanation the Word of God gave to it. And so what do you think he'd do with us? Something different? He'd do exactly the same thing. He does sometimes graciously lift our despair and our sadness because he can do whatever he wants to do. But what we should count on him to do is what he says he'll do. And he says he'll be true to his word. His faithfulness reaches to the skies. He cannot not keep a promise. So God often does with us exactly, I would say God regularly does with us exactly what Jesus did with John, except that we don't get it. We don't know it very often. Perhaps we haven't been taught it. But like he did with John, to us he says, you need to hit the word of God. You need to learn it, understand it. You need to believe it, and you need to embrace it. You need to just lean your whole weight on it. Once you've learned the truth, lean on that truth. Keep believing in hope and don't trip up. Just like he said to John, blessed is he who does not trip up over me. And about us, what does he say about us? Well, he said wonderful things about John out of his hearing. Is it possible, Christian friend, that Jesus says wonderful things about us out of our hearing? Well, what I really want to say to you is he says them in our hearing. Doesn't he say them in our hearing? Does the Bible contain assurances of God's love for his children? Well, we just read the ones for John. Those same ones apply to us. What does the Bible say? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What does it say specifically to us who believe? In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as the propitiation for our sins. How do I know whether God loves me? I don't feel like he loves me. My life doesn't look to me like he loves me. Where should I look to see whether God loves me or not? I look to Scripture, and where does Scripture point me? To Calvary. Does Calvary get undone? Because then God will stop loving me. If Calvary can unhappen, God won't love me anymore. Because that's where my sin was propitiated for. But that's where Scripture points me to look, and where it points you to look. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God is poured out in our hearts, Romans 5 says. I just quoted from 1 John 4. Uh, Revelation 1.5 Now to him who loves us and loosed us from our sins by his blood. Are there a few other verses about God's love, do you think? A couple? A dozen or two? A hundred or two? Yes, it's all over scripture. You want to know what God's saying about you, Beloved? You want to know what God's saying about you who've repented and trusted in Christ as your Savior? Put your ear up to the door and hear what he says about you. It's in Scripture. Read that. Learn it. Believe it. Rest your full weight on it. Now, I can hear somebody saying, honestly, if he was very candid with me, I understand what you're saying, but I just would really... What I really want is I just really wish God could be here saying that to me himself. I wish I could just hear God saying that to me himself, right there. Well, friend, what do you think the Bible is? What do you think the Bible is? It is the living and abiding word of God. The Bible is God's word to us. Who is speaking to us from these truths? It is God. He is speaking to us just as surely as if he were standing there saying these things to us. So, uh, how do you feel these truths? And I want to close with these thoughts. How do I experience this? How do I come to know this? 
go with me to John chapter 11. And here in John chapter 11, Lazarus has died. Jesus has deliberately let Lazarus die. Jesus, well, in fact, you know, let me just back up uh, to the start of chapter 11. So verse 1 says, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. And so the sisters send word to Jesus, verse 3, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And Jesus says, well, this illness is not going to lead to death, but for the glory of God. Now look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Or I would translate it better. Therefore, because he loved them, he let Lazarus die. What? Well, what did he say? Verse 4. For the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it, in a way that would not have happened if Lazarus had not died. So Lazarus dies, and then Jesus goes to them. And I want you to see what Jesus says in verse 40. Well, in verse 39, Jesus says, roll away the stone, and and, oh, what a hard thing for Martha to say, but she says, well, by this time there's going to be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. And look what Jesus says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You see how that applies to what we've been talking about? Now, we would want to answer, well, I'll tell you what, if I see the glory of God, I'll believe. Are you following me? If I see it, I'll believe. But what does Jesus say? If you believe, you'll see it. What's the implication? You don't believe, you won't see it. Did people see miracles but not see them? Did they not know what they meant even though they saw them? Yes, indeed. They didn't see God's glory because they were blind. But he tells her, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Notice that order. He says, what did I tell you? Could he not say that to you and me? What did I tell you? If you believe, you'll see the glory of God. I take you back to the verse we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Romans 15, 13. What does that say? Now may the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace. What are the next words? In believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to know joy. I do. I want to know peace. I do. How do I I know those things? By believing. You believe you'll see the glory of God. Or as Jesus says to John, you already know the answer. Think about what the Bible says. And that's the answer. Uh, We want the reverse. We want God to fill us with hope and joy and then we'll believe. But that's, that's backwards. That's not how it works. And you say, well, that doesn't meet my expectation. <laughs> We've been talking about that, haven't we? That is the way we walk with God. We believe first because God never lies. So when our expectations are not met, we all, like John, are going to experience trials of faith. When we do, we should go to God as John went to Jesus and we should pour out our heart And then we should search his word for the answer. We should understand it. We should believe it. And we should rest our full weight on it. Amen.
Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this living and powerful word from you. And Father, I, I am absolutely certain that there is something in here for every Christian person here. I pray that the Holy Spirit will make it real and powerful to each of our hearts that we might walk with hope and joy, that we might not be tripped up in our trials, but that we might give all glory and honor to you and be fruitful believers as we walk with you through this dark valley to our eternal home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.